Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome to Conversations. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my old friend and colleague, not old, but my young, old enough. My young but long time friend and colleague, uh, Chester Finn, Checker Finn, who we worked together in the Reagan administration in the education department. We had met previously when you worked for Pat Moynihan. I think one of, I would say, the leading education reformer and student of education reform over the last several decades. So well, you're kind. And so you're uh, going nice to tell to us. Here. It's good to be with you. And so education reform, it's when I came in 85, and you too, to work for Bill Bennett, yep. the education department. It yep. was two years after A Nation at Risk, yep. and, which was the report that was done under Reagan that kind of seemed to coalesce the education reform movement. Yep. And we had great hopes, and here we are, what, a long time later, 35, 35 years, years later, later, as we speak here in March of 2020. And where does it stand? I mean, where do our schools stand, and where does the reform effort stand? K- I'm thinking of K-12, K- 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 yeah. K-12 for now, yeah. Our schools are nowhere near where they need to be. They're nowhere near where the Nation at Risk Commission said they should be. Uh, they're better than they were. Uh, there have been gains. Of, That's right. So you think from 80, from whatever, from the Yeah, it's, it's, there's been a, if you just look at test scores, uh, there were considerable gains, especially in the early grades, especially for poor and minority kids, especially in math. Uh, through the 90s and in and into the 21st century, it's plateaued over the last uh, five or eight years, pretty much since the big recession. Uh, a big issue is that the gains that were visible never reached high school. Huh. And so the achievement results in high school are basically flat, have been for 20 years. Mystery is that graduation rates have been rising while actual evidence of learning has been flat. Why are graduation rates rising? Is that a rising? mystery, or is that just people well, wanting to graduate kids? I mean, it's it's a lot of pressure to raise your graduation rate. A lot of uh, accountability pressure from federal and state law that uh, uh, graduation rates part of what counts in how your school is evaluated. And so, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to graduate kids, and a lot of pressure from kids to graduate. Parents, everybody wants kids to graduate. Uh, nobody likes dropouts. So. High school has not been a, a pretty picture, um, and uh, there are a lot of crummy schools out there. But a couple other things need to be said. We, a whole lot more kids have uh, school choices than they did before the reform effort started. Um, there are a whole lot of interesting people coming into teaching uh, through side doors that weren't ever doing it in the, uh, uh, in the earlier era. Uh, there's um, more attention to things like advanced placement and um, millions more kids literally taking AP courses. So they're good things to say, but um, if you now look at international comparisons, uh, a lot of countries are sur- beginning to surpass us in terms of results, which is to say we mostly look flat and other countries are gaining. And yeah, so to really step back yes. in a way, so how do we really stand? We're not, I mean, leaving aside the reform efforts for a minute, yeah. you're just saying if you came down from Mars and looked at all the countries you put us uh, for, in our wealth, for our wealth and for our, you know, the, the other advantages we have, we're not, our education system is not as we are, as, the, the, so, the, the so, elevator so. speech is that we're in the middle of the pack among the OECD countries, um, and yet we're spending more than most of them. OECD being the, the developed. Advanced countries that uh, we're so used to say industrial countries. Right, right, right. Middle of the pack, and that seems to be true whether you're looking at at, at literacy or math or science. Uh, middle of the pack and not rising, 
as these those exams are given every three years. It's called the PISA exam. Uh, and um, we've been uh, static or slightly down uh, in all three subjects uh, in recent years, uh, partly because other countries are doing better. Is that education system issue with us, do you think, or uh, society, it's, culture, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's schools that don't push kids very hard. It's parents that are satisfied with the schools they've got, even though the schools aren't pushing their kids very hard. Uh, there's huge complacency uh, across the American middle class with the schools they've got. Uh, there is no sense that, um, that, that my kid has a problem. There's a lot of people who think the other side of town has a problem or the other part of the country has a problem, but my kid's fine, um, happy, um, well-adjusted, uh, gonna go to college, uh, don't worry about my kids. So if you're satisfied with your kid's school and you think somebody else's uh, school is a problem, you're not gonna push for anything other than what you've got. And when we were the education department, we sort of focused on two things, I'd, I'd say there was slightly tension with one another. One was push on curriculum and standards mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the substance, you might say, of education. Mm -hmm. The other was parental choice and competition, the sort of free market, you know, mechanism. Bill they're Bennett not, called it not, the three C's, content, character, and choice. Yeah, I guess they're not really in tension with one another, but a little bit in the sense a little of, bit. The, you know, that if, should the government oppose these standards or will competition take care of it? But I'm just curious, what do you, so on both of those fronts, maybe yeah. beginning with Competition and choice, which was which has been a court cornerstone core, of the certainly the conservative and for a long time bipartisan and yeah. for a long time bipartisan. That is sadly, um, along with bipartisanship in so many other realms, that is sadly ebbing away, as we can see in the current presidential contest. Um, but the push for choice has gotten about eight thousand charter schools into existence that didn't exist before. That's all in the last twenty years. Uh, that's six or so percent of kids going to charter schools. Uh, they're only nine percent going to private schools. Um, so the country as a whole, yes, ninety percent or so public schools. Is that my memory? Uh, some kind of public school. Charter schools are this interesting are hybrid. Are taking up six of they're that. They're taking six, seven percent, and that. they're public in one sense and private in another. In that they're voluntary and they are operated by private nonprofit, usually organizations. Um, but they are tax financed, you don't have to pay tuition, um, and they are accountable for academic results to the state. So, and do we think that that's six or seven percent? Would, would we be better off if 15% of that 90 or 30% of that 90 were some form of charter school or yes. competitive yeah. schools that, I guess, we're not just geographical. Is that the main alternative, I suppose? It Less and less so. I mean, when we were kids, everybody went to the, their neighborhood district school unless they were rich or Catholic. Uh, those were the exceptions. Uh, today, a very large number of people have some kind of choice. There's, oh. there, many districts have some kind of open enrollment within the district, so you can go to another school in the district. Uh, some states have open enrollment across district boundaries. So that's not captured by no, charter schools? No, absolutely not. So there is more competition or there is. more choice. There is much more choice. Okay. There is much more choice. And that's good. And that's good. Uh, it's not perfect. A lot of poor and minority kids are still stuck in really dismal inner city schools and don't have choices. Um, a lot of other people do have choices. Uh, some of the schools of choice, uh, sadly, are not as good as they should be. So we've got a different problem, which is um, a fair number of charter schools that are not doing any better than the, uh, than the crummy district schools to which they are alternatives. Now, the parents are satisfied with them, again. 
they're safe, they're convenient, they're welcoming. They're, those are not minor things if you're a, a poor inner city family to have your kids safe in a welcoming place. Uh, but the academic outcomes are uh, in a number of these schools are pretty weak. Uh, my organization, the Fordham Institute, actually authorizes 11 charter schools in Ohio. Hmm. And so we're up close and personal with um, 11 of these charter schools. And several of them are among the best schools in town, in Columbus and Cincinnati. Others are struggling, shall we say. I guess, I mean, one thing free market types say, which says some truth, it seems to me, is choice is good. But, of course, the reason choice works, if I can put it that way, in business and the private sector is if there are 10 restaurants and the, presumably if customers are, you know, become knowledgeable, the worst two will go out of business. So there's a price, there's accountability Correct. for choice. And here, if you have choice, but in a sense, you get your third choice instead of your first, but every school keeps chugging along and no school can change administration the way a restaurant could change its owner or chef. You know, it's sort of the, choice without the... The uh, charter with, schools and the private schools have a lot more flexibility to change uh, teachers and principals if they want to. Um, but it's very hard to close a bad school um, because even a bad school, whether it's a district school or a charter school, has families that love it, neighborhood that for which it is the centerpiece. Um, it's uh, uh, the theory of charter schooling. I've been at this for 20 years. The theory of charter schooling was if it's a bad school, you just don't renew it. You let it close. Well, the reality is that um, unless it's really corrupt and, and, and doing horrible things, uh, you let it keep going because the parents like it and the kids like it, and um, you'd put them out on the street if you closed it. And it's possible, this is certainly true in a couple of our Ohio situations, that the alternative schools for those kids are even worse than the mediocre charter school. But in general, how much, so leaving aside closing schools, maybe yes. you also can't, I take it it's hard in many public school systems to remove principals, to remove teachers, to pay good teachers more than how much of the sort of competition at that level doesn't exist that doesn't lot, exist more in the private sector I think a lot doesn't exist uh, the district schools are mired in bureaucracy and tenure and union contracts uh, and bureaucratic arrangements all of which make it very hard to make big changes in district schools um, the you can almost never fire an, a veteran teacher. You often can't even move them to another school. You often can't change their assignment within the school. Um, you may not have good evaluations of them in the first place, but why bother if you can't do anything about them? Uh, why give them a bad rating if you're stuck with them? Um, a lot of principals are saying that to themselves. Uh, school principals can be changed by superintendents, but not necessarily for the better. A lot of district school principals, and these are key figures. These are the people that run the school. Uh, in district schools, there are great ones, of course, but there are an awful lot that are sort of like middle management. They're told what to do by the superintendent's office. And so they do it. They aren't creative executive leaders. If you could change, uh, if, you, <laughs> if some politician came to you, a local mayor yes. or something, and said, look, I, I have limited political capital. I could probably change one or two of these things. Yeah, teacher, you know, teacher rule, rules and regulations and hiring principals, more charter schools. I mean, what's the, is there one well, thing that has more effect on educational outcomes and school success than others? Or it's a it's a web of things. So there's no there's no single thing that will that will do it alone. Empowering principals to actually run their schools which involves personnel and budget and curriculum, uh, and then hiring good principals to do that, 
Uh, New Orleans, after the hurricane, basically went all charter, all charter. And it's the most dramatic uh, reform story in American education. Hmm. The district basically vanished. Now, the district has gradually crept back into existence um, and is now essentially uh, responsible for these crew of charter schools. But there, the district vanished. And uh, a whole bunch of interesting people came to town to open schools and run schools and teach in schools. And the results were conspicuously better than they had been before the hurricane. Wow. Uh, empower principals to really run the schools. But again, that involves freeing up who teaches there, freeing them up to decide who teaches there, giving them budgetary control, which they usually don't have in districts, uh, and giving them curricula curricular control. So really a deregulation. Yeah, it's a deregulation. Decentralization agenda exactly would be very useful, you think? Combined with picking talent to then be in the leadership roles in those schools, yes. So it does sound like we were onto something with school choice. I mean, uh, school choice and competition and deregulation. Absolutely. I mean, that, that really would, the, the bureaucratization of the system, the lack of rewards for better and penal, uh, penalizing for worse is a, is a really a big problem. Absol and absolutely. And the easiest way to do that is not to presumably have massive bureaucratic teacher accountability systems, but just to make it more... Well, both things have been going on. There's been top-down accountability for results under the federal law, mostly, No Child Left Behind and its successor law, uh, such that schools are, in fact, evaluated from on high, basically, right. uh, the basis of their, of their achievement, their gains the kids are making, a bunch of other things. Simultaneously, choice has been going on at different rates in different places. I mean, there's still a lot of places without much choice going on. Uh, this is still a very decentralized system across the United States. Keep in mind, not only are the 50 states responsible, but we have 14,000 school districts across the country. And they are fairly autonomous in many, many ways, uh, including things like, do we have open enrollment within our district mm -hmm. for kids to, go to a, kids to go to a different school? But I would say we've had two big education reforms over the last 20 years. One has been creating more choices and freeing up people to go to other schools, which has liberated a lot of kids to, to improve their situation, a lot of families. And secondly, judging schools by their academic results. I mean, way back until the famous Coleman report of the 1960s, Schools were mostly judged by how much money was spent, uh, how many teachers there were, how many programs they offered. Now we mostly look at the results, uh, the scores, the rates, the graduation rates, the promotion rates, the third grade reading rates, things like that. This is a very important shift to look at outcomes instead of I inputs. Yeah, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. It's a very good thing. And it, there, that at least has... That's been good. Yeah, established. It's... Like all forms of accountability, it's led to some, some fraud and some cheating and some finagling, such as those uh, sort of fake graduation rate increases in high schools uh, that may not be justified by student learning, but are the result of pressure to boost your graduation rate. I mean, I guess our more libertarian, real free, you know, strict free market friends would say, at the end of the day, though, isn't it sort of like you have a choice of McDonald's or maybe McDonald's and Burger Kings? Um, some will be a little better than others, you know, run better and and they'll do a little better than others, and that's good. It's good to know. Maybe it's good to let, obviously, yep. customers choose which of them they prefer based on their yep. either experience or reading some consumer reports type thing or, or you know, rating. But at the end of the day, you, it's it's very small step towards genuine competition, deregulation. It is. Milton Friedman would not approve of the system. But he wasn't 
entirely correct that a free market would produce better quality in education. And the problem there are the consumers are not necessarily looking for what I'd call quality uh, in education. If they are satisfied with safety, convenience, and, and, and pleasantness, niceness, welcome, welcomingness, and they're not looking for reading, writing, and arithmetic, then you don't have the right kind of demand-driven quality improvements that uh, Milton Friedman assumed would come. Yeah, that's interesting. It's important. I mean, among a 20% of the population, the people that want their kids to go to a selective college, the, the motivations are different. People will look for a quality school. An awful lot of people are satisfied with safe, convenient, and welcoming. And I suppose the way a lot of those people look for a quality school is two things. I mean, private schools, which yep. do have more autonomy, yep. con genuine competition, I yep. suppose. Or suburban schools or, that have or, a lot of advanced placement courses. Well, or they look by moving to a certain neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or town. We, we or, call it real estate choice. Yeah. It's school choice by, by locating somewhere. Which I guess is okay. I mean, Of course it's okay. It's okay in a way. I mean, it's... It's bad for poor. For exactly. It's, it's good if you can afford it. Yeah. Uh, and that's why poor families get stuck in these inner city schools without choices, because a lot of what the middle class, upper middle class is doing is real estate choice. Uh, they are moving to a place where they think the school is going to be better for their kid, and they can afford to do it, whether they're renting or moving to a fancy house in a, in a posh suburb. And the bulk of young people who don't go to a selective college and go to some college yep. or... Um, I mean, do we have evidence that I mean, maybe parents are being reasonable? You know what? If the kids, if it's safe, it's pleasant, they learn the basics. It's not the fanciest, highest standard. You know, they don't read the greatest English literature, but they get out. And what's the big damage, I guess, would be the question, right? The kid may do okay, though there's a heinous college dropout rate that is worth noting. A lot of kids going into college, often borrowing money, um, not being actually ready or motivated to succeed in college, dropping out of college, no degree but debt. Um, and so this is, this is a problem worth um, taking seriously. Um, but it's also the case that, you know, the economists talk about education as having both being a public good and a private good. Uh, the uh, private good part is, is my kid going to do okay with the education she's getting? The public good part is, is the country doing okay yeah. with the population it's educating? Uh, I think that's where the more vivid problem is. And I suppose one would learn that problem either by contrasting with the past or with other countries. Exactly. So, uh, so you're not just have a utopian standard of everyone should be, you know, a genius or something. So. And some of the sophisticated analysts that have looked at other countries whose economies are in some cases growing faster than ours are finding it's because their uh, kids are better educated than ours. I mean, the mass of kids uh, better educated. So there is a connection, mm. not a real direct one, but there is a connection between the quality of the education people are actually getting and the um, economic success of the country that they're living in. Now, U.S. is doing fine economically for all sorts of reasons, and uh, some of it is very good schools for a fraction of the population and highly educated people that become inventors and, 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 and entrepreneurs and, and scientists and so on. So there's a part of the population that's doing fine, and that carries a lot of weight in the how the country's doing. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also a lot of people who, once upon a time, 
would have worked in a factory or a field and who now aren't getting great jobs or careers and they're sort of dead-ending because they don't have much education. And a post-industrial economy needs better educated population than it's getting. Yeah, so there seems to be two sort of challenges. Let's call it the average education level, which we could do better and should do better at and increasingly need to do better at because more and more people need to depend on education, not on, right. And the advanced part. Yeah, so let's talk, well, maybe let's just finish up on the average part. Um, Have we uh, said most of what has to be said about the average? I mean, how optimistic, I guess, would you say? How it's just such a big system, I guess, and it's so embedded. Big, embedded and, and decentralized. Which, in a way, is the worst. I mean, yeah. we're for decentralization. I am, at least as a general matter, in American life and politics and for various reasons. But in a funny way here, you get the worst of, am I wrong to say that you get the worst of both worlds? You get a sort of general, you get unions and you get standards, which are sort of general and sort of average-ish. <laughs> and then you get decentralization, which makes it hard to actually improve it, you know? Yes, it's why I'm no longer a believer in what in one of the shibboleths of American education, which is called local control of the schools, yeah. uh, because what that now means is municipal control of the schools through an elected school board that is often either just full of aspiring politicians uh, out to placate their constituencies, or uh, taken over by the teachers union, which yeah. now runs the candidates that win the, the the election. They end up bargaining with themselves at the bargaining table. So, so the, I don't like that kind of local control anymore. Once in a blue moon, you get the stars aligned in a particular city. I mean, New York under under Bloomberg and Joel Klein did amazing things with the schools because they got power to make changes. And they got out from under the elected local school board, by the way. That was mayoral control. Hmm. Um, now it's because, and did that reflect itself in actual results yes, and scores? Yes, it did. Wow. Now, um, mayoral control is not an unmitigated good thing either because uh, Bill de, La- de Blasio, the successor mayor, is undoing most of the things that uh, uh, that were done. This happens in a democracy. There's another election, and right. things get undone. Yeah, the local control thing is interesting. I, I, I was sort of – I learned that when I got here in a way, having not studied education policy yep. like you, but just having a general kind yep. of vague preference for such things as local control. It, it is, sounds good, but it's not really – parent control or citizen control. That's where charter schools come in. Charter schools really are a kind of reinvention of local control because most of them really are um, uh, purely uh, neighborhood-based or group-based or they're, they're, they're locally controlled, uh, unlike a Los Angeles school district, for example, uh, which you know, sprawls across hundreds of thousands of kids and, and many miles of real estate. So charter schools are a kind of reinvention of local control that I think has got great merit but the school district structure, uh-uh. Um, but our our high-end education is is in decent shape and is uh, bigger than it was, even in the, I mean, three million kids took AP exams last year. Uh, this is in high schools that enroll 15 million kids. I mean, about a qu- almost a quarter of high school graduates last year in the United States had, had at least taken an AP exam. Hmm. This is impressive. 70% of the schools, I mean, I have this new book out about the AP program, uh, which I will happily uh, show you. Yes, good. Called Learning in the Fast Lane, uh, the past, present, and future of advanced placement. And um, this this was a small elite thing when I was in, in high school and college. I skipped my freshman year in college thanks to the advanced placement program, which actually produced credit in college. Um, there are many versions of this now, but the fact that 70% of high schools uh, offer some AP that about a quarter of the kids take some AP, 
this is this is good, and there are uh, alternatives like the so-called International Baccalaureate Program, the IB program. Um, this is good, and it's it's the standards are high, the rigor is there, the college level work in high school is there for kids who have already exhausted what the regular high school curriculum could offer. Uh, I'm pretty bullish about the about the the high end. There's not enough of it, which is why places like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and Boston Latin and Thomas Jefferson are endlessly the subject of admissions controversy because, you know, such a small fraction of, the, of those that want to go and are qualified to go uh, actually get in. And shouldn't they, why, so why don't these school districts create another really Bronx good Science and another Thomas Jefferson? I keep asking them that. Why not expand the supply? Uh, and the usual answer is, oh, these are elitist. I mean, the, the 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 progressive reply is these are elitist things, and we should put all our resources into low achievers because we've got this terrible underclass problem of kids who are barely literate, which isn't wrong. But uh, it's as if we can't walk and chew gum at the same time uh, in an education system uh, and uh, work with low achievers and also high achievers. No, we should have. Uh, uh, the part of Virginia where you live should have five Thomas Jefferson high schools. Uh, and New York City, instead of having nine selective high schools, exam schools they call them, uh, in New York City should have 50. Uh, and because the kids are able to do the work. Uh, and so now we're dealing with, uh, you know, the kid that gets a, a, a 570 on the exam gets in and the 569 kid doesn't get in. Well, the 569 kid would also do really well in a school like that. Uh-huh. And better than it. At his yeah, local and high deserves it is ready to accelerate, um, and uh, the districts tend. When my colleague and I, the previous book called Exam Schools, uh, went hunting for these selective admission public high schools around the country, we only found 160 in the whole country. Now I guess you could say, but a lot of regular good, if I can put it that way, non-selective or non-exam schools yep. have advanced placement. They exactly. have accelerated classes, so it's not as if the students are just being aren't being offered opportunities That's, to do more. The correct. And and you don't have to have separate schools. You can have AP programs within your regular school. You get into a different issue there about are you internally tracking kids within the regular school and right. denying admission to AP to, to minority kids, for example. Right. Uh, and you get into a whole lot of, of questions of who gets into the honors classes and the AP classes in regular high schools, um, it, which echoes back further into what kind of middle school did these kids go to? Because if they went to a really disastrous middle school, they're probably not well prepared to do AP work in high school. Whereas the kid in the same room who went to a really good middle school is in much better shape when they get to high school. Well, that raises an interesting question, yes. which probably should have asked you earlier, but it's okay. We can cover all these different things. Um, it's a complicated yes. area, right? Different levels of schooling, different yeah. parts of different different. Uh, questions about how to organize schooling and about the content, which we haven't gotten to yet. But so, what is the? I mean, one often hears, you know, we'll look preschool. I mean, the early childhood education is actually the crucial thing. Then you just said, yeah. however, that we do reasonably well in elementary schools, but somehow don't something disappears. I suppose between elementary school and high school, and suddenly we have mediocre high schools. I mean, which maybe the middle schools we don't do that well in those years. I have a vague memory of that from when I yeah. went to the education department. Yeah. I mean, what's, I'm sure it's all important, but is there sort of, again, if a politician said, well, okay, I can only focus on one of these, you know, age two to six, oh, two to six, yeah. six to 12, 13 to 15, or high school, what, what should I focus on? Or what, <sighs> what I mean, could a good high school presumably can't really make up for a very bad 
elementary and middle middle school, right? If you don't know some of the basics, it, it some of them try hard to make up. And uh, we profile in this uh, in this AP book a little public high school in Brooklyn that uh, does a remarkable job of taking kids from crummy middle schools all over the city and mm. preparing many of them, not all of them. Uh, to manage AP work before the end of high school. But it's hard. It's really hard if they didn't come from a decent uh, basic education in the elementary and, and middle schools. You were touching on something that's also worth noting, which is are they ready to succeed in kindergarten when they're five? Uh, and that gets to the preschool question and the home, the home upbringing question. And did anybody read books to them when they were little? And do they have a vocabulary because people talk to them? Uh, and... Um, We've got a lot of kids who are entering kindergarten uh, ill-prepared to succeed in basic kindergarten, first grade, second grade stuff. And how fatalistic are you on that? I mean, uh, I'm pretty. It's if you're not reading fluently by third grade, uh, your prospects are bleak. But if you don't come from a well-off home or a home that's got a lot of books, yeah, maybe not an English-speaking home, and show up at a decent kindergarten or first grade, yeah. You're not, you don't, they're not way behind. It's, they're never going to catch up. It's I not mean, fatal in kindergarten and first grade if you've got really good teachers who teach, um, to, to, who know how to teach reading uh, and who do it. Um, most kids can be uh, caught up at least in those ways. They'll still lack, you know, background knowledge about a bunch of stuff. They may learn to read fluently, but they will never have heard of, uh, of George Washington um, or, or England uh, or China because they won't have any of that sort of core knowledge, as E.D. Hirsch would call it. Uh, but um, they can re- learn to read, and there you just need um, uh, first-rate teachers who know how to teach primary reading. That sounds like a no-brainer, uh, but we have all sorts of evidence that about half of our ed schools don't even teach the future teachers how to teach reading. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, this is really depressing. Do we have a big ed school problem? Since we're oh, do we have it? a big ed school problem? Yeah, I mean, we have about 1,200 colleges of education in the country, and they do prepare the overwhelming majority of teachers. Uh, And there are two problems. One is that um, for a host of reasons, they're not getting very many of the best and the brightest uh, young people to even attend them. So um, they're reaching fairly deep into the barrel in order to just fill the ed school classes with people who aren't that smart or aren't that well-educated themselves. Second problem is that what ed schools teach um, is often not what teachers need to know. Uh, and sometimes that's for ideological reasons. Um, there's all the so-called reading wars, the so-called math wars. There are professors that actually sort of don't believe in phonics who are teaching future elementary teachers, um, and they're not teaching them to teach phonics um, because the faculty is a problem in, the, in this regard. Yeah, we've got a huge ed school problem. That's why one of the good things I ta- mentioned earlier are the side doors into teaching, such as the Teach for America program and the so-called alternative certification programs. So you don't necessarily have to go to an ed school to get into teaching. Yeah, we pushed that quite a lot. When we, we did. In government. There's something a little crazy about, yeah, you you graduate from one of the best colleges in the U.S. and you want to teach for a few years, but you can't get certified exactly. in the public schools of your city or your state. I mean, When we were talking earlier about the crazy bureaucratic uh, restrictions on schools, uh, teacher certification by states is one of them. Uh, and again, the charter and private schools are generally free from this. They right. can generally hire whom they want. And that is a hugely important uh, freedom. They don't, in general, have to be state certified. In some states they do, but mostly not. Yeah, I think we pushed hard to get military 
Yeah. Alter, you know, since presumably if you're 20, retiring after 20 years in the military, you're probably pretty good at dealing with 18-year-olds, and maybe you could be good in a high school teaching various things. There is a indeed counselor. a program called Troops to Teachers. And right? Yeah, it's not huge, but it's exactly following that, uh, uh, that, that, that reasoning. And is the union resistance less to all that? or <sighs> There's a kind of union ed school uh, oligarchy that uh, often takes charge of the state uh, decision-making process that regulates these things. And the ed schools, of course, want a monopoly. Um, and the unions, in general, agree with that view of how you should become a teacher because they, for them it becomes an issue of what they would call professionalism. If you weren't trained to be a teacher, you're not a proper professional. And you right. shouldn't be allowed in the side door because you're not a professional teacher. You're right. just this random person. Well, you might have gone to, you might have gone to Princeton and uh, graduated magna cum laude, but you're still not a proper teacher. Yeah, or you could take one course probably, yeah. and you know, it's like you know, whatever, and how to teach nine-year-olds, and which is not nothing. I mean, some of the psychological and sociological and behavioral stuff. No, there's important stuff to know about how kids. There, but yeah, the idea that if you graduate from history in Princeton, that you can't teach history to exactly, you don't know enough history to teach fifth graders seems a little. Absurd, uh, yeah. absurd. But it's a good example of how how the system has gotten tangled in its in its own undergarments uh, with those kinds of regulatory arrangements. So the most deregulated part, and we fought about this too. We fought for this when we were in government <laughs> of the system. I guess is homeschooling, yeah, which once was prohibited in many states or very very much it's permitted now, and is now permitted fairly yeah liberally. Would you say? I mean, you have yeah. to take some tests, and obviously you can't make make sure the kids being treated decently and all so forth. I guess there's a little bit of exam. I don't even know how much there is well, of that actually monitoring, but. Um. We're up to three or 4% of all kids in America are homeschooled and it's up from about 2% um, 15 or so years ago. That's almost all we know, however, because the and data- like 0.1% yeah. 40 years ago, I would say. That's correct. Ago, um, homeschooling is a bit of a black box, a bit of a mystery, because uh, very little is known about what actually it actually consists of, who's actually doing it. We've got a little bit of demographic information. We've got almost no outcomes information. Is that right? Yeah, because the homeschoolers don't take those, those standardized tests that everybody else takes, and therefore we can't compare their outcomes with anybody else's. Must have a little SAT and ACT level information. I mean, they have to get into college if they want to go to college. If they want to go to college, so that at the end of high school, those that are headed for college, and 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 there's lots of anecdotal stuff. I mean, every year you read about the homeschooled kid who never sat in a regular school, who's admitted to Harvard, and uh, and and so on. Right. Um, but uh, systematic data on achievement uh, across a, a a proper sample of homeschooled kids, we don't have any. And so your general judgment of that movement? Uh, well, it's never going to – as long as parents are working, we are never going to sort of overwhelm the system with homeschooling. It's up to 4 percent. Maybe it'll go to 6 percent, um, while charters maybe go to 10 percent. Um, private schools still hovering around 9 percent. I can see that happening. But no, I mean, it requires parents to be the main actors yeah. in homeschooling, and most of them can't or won't or don't want to. I mean, it's a little misleading the term because my impression from talk, this is mostly anecdotal, from talking to a lot of homeschoolers, yeah. is it's more like, you know, communal, I mean, it's, it's, it's non-government schooling, as they right. might say, if you're certainly on the right. And, um, 
And so it's not necessarily each parent teaching. No, it's teaming up. Teaming up. Yes. You can order stuff online for curricula. You could ask if it's a subject you don't know. You can get someone to come in and teach it to you, just the way we have music teachers and art teachers and et cetera. And so they, it becomes a little more of an informal and formal education as opposed to home education. Well, that's uh, correct. Which is good, I think. I mean, you can also, in many places, send your kid to school for that one subject. Right. Uh, but, the, you know, they, you can't physics. Your kid wants to learn physics, so he goes to school one or two periods a day and yeah. learns physics. Um, the online thing has become a yes, huge. Let's talk about that. Because well, it's become somehow... a huge, huge benefit for homeschoolers is that yes, the online huge. curriculum is available now. Yes. And you no longer have to uh, write off for someone to mail you books and things from or, a, and competing online online curricula, right? Yes, and, absolutely. And Khan Academy here. Yes, and this some of them there. are good. Yeah. Some of them are good. And if the parent is involved in actual supervising, then the online curriculum can work fine. Where online education fails is when the kid is just sort of strapped to a computer, and and the theory is he's going to educate himself because the online stuff through the computer is going to be sufficient to motivate and educate and evaluate and and answer questions and so on. That's not working so well. Uh, Where there is a competent adult in the kid's life, whether it's in a school classroom or at home, the online supplementation of the adult or equipping the adult works fine, works fine. In schools, this is now called blended learning. You, 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 the t- there's a teacher in the classroom, but half the kids are on the computer learning something while the teacher is working with the other half learning something else. Um, at home, it's a parent who is is drawing down, whether it's from Khan Academy or from one of these uh, proprietary programs, um, like uh, K-12, an online company, really, that um, Bill Bennett and I helped to start. I've, disappointed me in many ways since then. Uh, but if there's a, a, a adult at home, it can work fine for these kids. The strapping them to computer, not so good. I mean, think picture an eight-year-old uh, sort of being left to educate himself. Yeah. Uh-uh. So I guess I've had sort of hopes that the combination of some homeschooling, and of course you don't have to homeschool your kid, as you said, every class, right. every year. If right. it's a good teacher, you can send him to school. But if it's a, un, if it's a bring bad year, bring him home for yep. the year. And I do, I do run into more people who seem to be grazing, mixing, grazing. mixing yes. some home education, some online education, some yes. formal government education. And yes. that does seem somewhat hopeful in the sense that you presumably – but again, it probably takes a fairly – Small Sophisticated time family with the time and knowledge to be choosy and to have the options, be able to afford the options, um, which involves, again, having a parent who can afford to be at home uh, that year uh, or a neighbor uh, who's uh, good enough that that works for the kid. Yeah, it's not going to work for everybody. And it sounds so it sounds from what you're saying generally that uh, I mean, if I asked you what's it going to look like in 25 or 40 or 60 years, the American education system. You seem to be a little more on the side of it's not going to be 100% fundamentally unrecognizably transformed. Sadly. We're still going to have government public schools, yep. taxpayer funded, yep. people, kids going to physically to these schools Mostly. and so forth. Mostly it is, going to st- it is very slow to change. It is evolving with standards and choices and other forms of schooling that are available to a slowly growing part of the population. Uh, and it will continue to evolve, I think, in that way, though there's, there's pushback coming now um, from 
what was a bipartisan coalition in favor of these things. Um, the uh, the what we call the education establishment, what Bennett called the blob, uh, which is not just the unions, though they're prominent. Also, the school boards association and the superintendents association and the custodians association and so on. There's a lot of pushback coming against this loosening up, these choices, these alternatives, because for them it's jobs. Um, and it's also status and power and influence and so on. So I do worry that the politics that made a lot of these reforms uh, get as far as they've gotten is uh, crumbling a bit. Yeah, I mean, the most two most recent Democratic presidents, yeah. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, each. They were fine on charter schools, well, not they were, on. But they thought of themselves, I think it's fair to say, at least, and Clinton much more so, yeah. as he actually did it as governor, yeah. as education reformers. Yep. I, I wouldn't say listening to the debates this year among the Democrats, that's. No, they're. They're more defending of the system against. Exactly. Bad people who. Exactly. Yeah. And including a couple of prominent candidates who were once in favor of charter schools and now they're against them. And, I mean, they've literally flipped on that issue. Uh, and the only conceivable explanation for the flipping is they want the teachers' union support. And they think pandering in this way will get, will get it for them. And they're probably right. So you're not – we shouldn't be complacent about no. even the muted incremental progress we've made, let alone the real muted, breakthroughs. The muted incremental progress – was to a very considerable degree dependent on a reform coalition uh, that was bipartisan and that included a lot of um, uh, smart people, nonprofit organizations, some visionary uh, uh, political leaders, um, some visionary philanthropists. Uh, that's not real visible today. So I worry, I mean, I, the evolution is going to continue and mostly in a positive direction. But I think it's going to be a lot slower because of the uh, easing off or crumbling of the mechanisms that made it possible. I mean, I guess, would, is it possible a Sputnik-like moment would sort of galvanize <sighs> people to say we need really big changes? Or maybe that's all a myth. I mean, did it actually galvanize people? <laughs> it galvanized the federal government to do some stuff that it had never before done in the 50s, uh, Sputnik, uh, mostly in the science and math and engineering area. It did galvanize some federal programs. Uh, it uh, galvanized a handful of um, practicing educators to do stuff like AP. I mean, the AP program more or less dates to the Sputnik era. Mm. Um, and uh, so what are we going to do? We had serious people like you know, James Brandt, Conant, the president of Harvard, saying, what are we going to do for these kids who need to become tomorrow's engineers and scientists? And they're bored in high school, and so let's bring some college-level work into high school. So it did make a difference. Um, subsequent uh, developments have not had an equal effect. Um, I periodically looked at these PISA scores that show the United States not doing very well and said, ah, that's going to be a Sputnik moment. That's going to really wake people right. up. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. no. Yeah, if you're in a country whose economy is growing, as you say, if parents are reasonably satisfied with reasonably the, overall, satisfied. the overall atmosphere and, and the performance the, of the schools. and If you're complacent about the schools you got, um, and a lot of middle-class families are, and they're not striving to get their kid into Stanford, um, and or if you're stuck in a dire inner-city school with no alternatives, and uh, 
and your uh, and your state representative uh, depends on the teachers union for re-election, um, you're not in a real in a real good place to um, to to. You may not be complacent about your school, uh, but you don't have much alternative there, unless some governor or mayor can exactly. Really Exactly. Bust through and do it. So and maybe the, you'd think there would still be political opportunities, maybe, but I think there are. Uh, I, I know there are, um, and you can see a handful of states today where that is the case, and uh, many more where it has been the case. And there've been some crusading uh, uh, state leaders. Uh, I mean, Jeb Bush and actually George W. Bush uh, both were very good examples of uh, uh, Lamar Alexander when he was governor of Tennessee. I mean, you can you can make a list, including a fair number of Democrats. Um, of crusading governors that made a difference in their state's education system for a while. Yeah, but it tends to regress back. Tends to regress. I sometimes think of American public education as a giant rubber band that stretches while there's tension on it, um, but the tension goes away and it resumes its previous shape. Would cost sort of put a lot of pressure on, or what's the trajectory over the last 20, 40 years in K through 12 education? Are we? Uh, We've roughly tripled per pupil spending in real terms over the last 50 years and it has it leveled off with the recession 10 years ago um, but it's um, and who knows about today's economy but it's been rising again slowly since the recession uh, we're spending national average is about fourteen thousand dollars per kid in public education uh, which is more than almost every country in the world is spending uh, when you when you when you make those comparisons. One or two small European countries spend a little bit more. Uh, so we're not, in my view, getting anywhere near our money's worth. But it also has to be said that um, a lot of schools are struggling on, uh, you know, seven or eight or nine thousand dollars a year, and in some posh suburbs, uh, we're up to sixty thousand dollars a kid. I mean, it's big differences. They're, they're the local and state funding. Yeah. Really. I was thinking of the healthcare comparison, where we spend more than other countries. Yes. We spend a higher yes. degree more than other countries. We do. Um, and people can argue about outcomes. But we do foster a lot of innovation. And yes. a lot of other countries probably freeload on us in terms yes, of Yes, all true in the healthcare world. It doesn't feel to me like in education you can make a comparable argument. No, you can't. Uh, what the, we've the, got. The tripling of expenditures is not matched well, by a. Uh, no, I'll tell you why, at least. I mean, healthcare is better today. The other thing is, is that it was 40 yes. years ago, just objectively. I mean, not, you know, people are right. living who would have died. And, Drugs are dealing with problems that couldn't be dealt with. A little hard to make that case for well, education. Maybe most of the additional money has gone into hiring more adults to work in the system. And so one of the reasons the teacher pay has stayed flat hmm. uh, is that instead of um, hiring better people and paying them more, we've hired more people. Um, and so teacher-student ratios are radically down from where they were when we were kids. Is that right? Yes. Um, it's stunning. If the the... The national average ratio of kids to teachers when I was in school in Dayton, Ohio in the 50s was 27 to 1. The national average now using the same metric is 14 to 1. Wow. We've almost doubled. And that's real teachers. And then we also have more administrators, right? More of everything. Right. Uh, and so now we've got this massive workforce in our public education system. I mean, 4 million teachers for starters. Uh, bigger than any other part of the American workforce, more than the military, more than nurses, more than anything you can name are now teachers. And the upshot is that we've hired a lot of people, but they're getting paid the same that, that their mothers were getting paid um, in real dollars uh, when their mothers were teaching school 30 years ago. So the money's gone into hiring more bodies. 
And I don't think that's, I mean, there's some justification for it. Well, so the counter argument would be, well, that's great to have 14 to 1 people can pay attention It is if kid. people No are, one wants to be in a class these days with 30 other students. I mean, I get, no parent wants this kid or kid, I guess, well, that's to the be motive. in a class with 30 other students. The motive is parents. I don't parents know if they do or don't, but I mean. No, you're right. Parents want smaller classes. Do parents classes. care about it? Is, 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 well, is you, this responding to parental demands? Depends on how you demand, ask the question. Or is it, it de- if you ask the parents... Would you rather have your kid in a class of 27 kids with a great teacher or a class of 22 kids with a mediocre teacher? Then you get a different answer. Right. If you just generically say, would you like your kid to be in a smaller class? Uh, the answer is sure. Well, yes, of not? course I would. Yeah. If you ask teachers, would you like to have fewer kids in your classroom? Of course they would. Uh, if you ask ed schools, would you like more people to pass through your gates? Of course they would. Right. If you ask unions, would you like more members? Of course they would. All the pressure has been to expand the, the workforce. And that has not led to uh, higher quality people being brought into it or being compensated better, which might also bring higher quality people into it. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because that is unlike a lot of other parts, obviously, of the economy, where I don't think we have this bias towards smaller being better, necessarily. It's exactly. Just, we, people can choose to have smaller this or that, but... I mean, uh, the following statistic is now out of date because I did this a few years ago, but I calculated at one point that if the ratio had stayed the same as when I was a kid, but the spending had gone up as it has gone up, the average teacher in America would be earning about $100,000 at current spending levels if the ratio had, hadn't changed. Now, is any of this due to, are they required to have smaller classes? Are they required to have certain numbers of, I'm sure they are, of counselors and you know, with yes. administrators, and it, some of that must be... Some of that's dictated by politics. California made a huge mistake when it passed a class size limit. Florida's done the same thing, um, because what that meant was that you suddenly had to scramble to get a bunch more bodies into classrooms, whether they were qualified or not. Also turned out to have unexpected conse- effects, like you had to have more buildings because you had to have more classrooms, because they had to... And so got big capital cost came with that. No, that's not been a good move. It seems like some charter school or private school, I guess, should say, we're going to have, uh, if this is legal, we're going to have 30 kids in a class, 25 kids in a yes. class, 30 kids in a class, but we're going to have best teachers first, in the world. We're going to pay teachers $125,000. Best a teachers year. in the world. We'll give them a couple of you know, 23 year old you know, teacher aides. Teacher aides. And some technology. And technology. Yeah. And you're going to be, but your kid's going to be in a much bigger class. That's yeah. the price you pay for this quali- high quality. Uh, sure, surely parents A couple of charter that. schools have done something like is that. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they've, they've changed the ratio, but they brought in technology. They brought in uh, college kids to be tutors and other ways to supplement these, these bigger groups of kids. But th- they don't feel like bigger groups of kids because you never have 50 kids sitting in the classroom with the teacher. Right. Um, you've got a teacher who's responsible for 50 kids, um, but you've got a lot else going on in the course of the school day so that the kids are uh, spending part of the time online, part of the time with their tutor, and part of the time coaching each other. Stuff like that. And I suppose a part of the problem is we have this so much sunk cost, if that's the yeah. – sure I'm using yeah. the term quite correctly. Some economists can, can correct this when, they, when he watches this conversation. But uh, so much human capital and physical capital yep. that exists. No one wants to – and so you have the schools and they're built in certain ways. Yep. And you have all these teachers and administrators. Yep. And no one has is going to – since it's a public sector thing. Not going to fire them? Right. Fire them, yeah. let them up. It's not like the private sector where it's too right. bad, you know. And We're laying off 100,000 well, people. They're, they're that, one, I'm making yes. this up. Obviously, they're one-fifth as many steel workers as there were yeah. 50 years ago. And that's just the way the world works when you have 
So once you have those sunk costs and a desire uh, to protect them, both mm. human and and also you know who wants to yeah you do have the physical sunk yep. costs too, so to speak, of all these school buildings and who wants to close one. I guess occasionally they do get closed and converted to condos or something. Once in a while, not often. That really slows down change. It does when you think about it. It's a hugely cumbersome and change-resistant uh, enterprise. You don't get Google. You don't get uh, Uber. You don't get you don't get all the things we think of as the 21st century drivers right. of change and right. examples of right. of change in that kind of system. You can Even point- in medicine, you'd get more change, I think, because uh, the technology almost forces it and. Correct. And there's more private sector. I mean, most physicians don't work for the government. so You can point to small examples, little networks of charter schools that do it very differently. Uh, you can always point to good examples in the American education system. But then you look at the fact that there's 100,000 schools. Um, and your good examples uh, represent hundreds, not tens of thousands of, of those schools. Uh, yeah, it's very cumbersome, very slow to change, gla- glacial. Glacial. Yeah, both very and and hard to change because no one person, unless, the military might, let's say, be susceptible to some of the same criticisms. Ultimately, it hasn't changed that much in fifty years. They have the same, you know, enlistment tours, the same officer yeah. rotations. I mean, they, they, yeah. they've changed some, but uh, but of course, there, a determined reformer could come into one of the services and exactly with the support of Congress, I suppose. But you know, would have to have the support of Congress, but could actually make pretty big changes. It's There's national. no equivalent in education, right? No, I mean, because uh, we've got a, a, a decentralized system. Uh, military is the classic centralized system, right? Uh, and this is not. And so, uh, the uh, famously, the word education appears nowhere in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it is subsumed in the Tenth Amendment, which leaves it to the states, and uh, every state but Hawaii has then decentralized into districts. Well. Higher education, I mean, <laughs> one often hears uh, people from higher education sort of acknowledge that K-12 is not great, but hey, American higher education is the envy of the world. People do come from all over the world to study here, and not much the other way, and, right. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so what's, they're what's partly your... right. They're partly right at the, at the high end. The 100 institutions that they're thinking about when they say that um, are most of the best in the world are in that 100, um, but most kids don't go to that 100. They go to the other 2,500, uh, most of which are open admission. They'll take anybody. They're, in many cases, hungry for butts in seats, bodies in class, uh, state, state subsidies that come with enrollment. Uh, they'll, they'll take anybody, whether they're qualified, whether they're ready for college-level work, uh, whether they're truly motivated to go to college. Um, and they will give them, we have very few outcome measures in higher education. We're far better at outcome measures in K-12 than we are in higher ed. Uh, almost the only thing we have are degrees granted, uh, no evidence of actual learning uh, in, in higher ed. And we've got a, a whole lot of mediocrity uh, in those open enrollment public and private institutions, community colleges now, many of which are hurting for students. Um, and uh, full employment is not good for community colleges. Um, community colleges thrive during recessions, right. uh, when people go to go back to school instead of getting it because they can't get a job. And I think we have a government loan and grant program that probably encourages encourages everyone to go. We've also got a kind of liberal ethos that everyone should go which is wrong, and it has led us to sorely uh, undervalue uh, vocational technical career education, this notion that everyone should go to college. Uh, it's led to some very 
uh, bad counseling of people as to where they should go. Uh, it's led to uh, a lack of good alternatives to college. And it's led to this kind of easy financing for, I mean, it's like a home loan bubble. It's uh, easy, anybody can get financing. Uh, and is it a bubble? I mean, is it going to I don't know. Uh, it's so far the government people said it was going to, but it hasn't yet. And government props it up with uh, umpty trillion dollars now in student loan debt that uh, you know some candidates want to forgive all well, what of. What about that though? I mean, that seems to have some political resonance. It does. But I guess you can't really blame some of the students. They were they sort of were... talked into taking out a loan, or their family was, and then it turned out to be not very yeah. fun or. Yes, or, or stimulating to go to the particular school they were at, and not even clear that they needed it was going to help them. And, and then if, they, by the time they discovered this, eighteen months in, they owe X amount of money, whether they got a degree or not. And if everybody you know under the age of fifty is paying off a student loan uh, debt or not paying off their student loan debt, uh, of course there's going to be political resonance in "Let's forgive it all." Yeah, uh, which uh, I think is a really dumb idea, but uh, it's uh, understandable. Uh, why? And uh, it's also understandable why people, uh, a lot of them default, is that they're not earning much money. They didn't get a degree. They didn't get a credential. College is probably a bad idea in the first place for them. Um, but the alternatives available, as I said, were not um, were not good. I do. I've always had the feeling, but I don't know if there's any evidence, that the uh, internet, I mean, uh, the technology, yeah. would... Uh, has the potential to help more at that level, at the 18-year-old level, or the 28-year-old level who went yes. was in the military for eight years and then got out and decided. Yes. Then, as you say, the eight-year-old ultimately no, you're needs right. to be shepherded or taught by someone, maybe the parent, yes. maybe the teacher. Maybe, yes. you know, but, but you know, 24-year-old doesn't can, can decide, I, I'm interested in X, I want to learn it online, and yes. here I'll, I'll look at a consumer reports type thing to see what the best uh, yes. you know course available online is and yes. there obviously can be you know monitored and graded each week and mm-hmm. you could have provide teachers and teaching right. assistants to talk to this There's lots young of this man going or on. woman yeah and, that, and it that, works better for older people because um, they're motivated uh, and they're more or less disciplined uh, now the, the sort of full-time traditional undergraduate that tries to do it online is turns out from the evidence to date if they never go to class, they never talk to a professor, they never have human interaction with fellow students or, 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 or faculty, it doesn't go so well for them. Uh, it requires an immense amount of discipline and self-discipline and, and, and motivation right. to stick with it. Again, a blended approach where you're, you're, you're learning a lot on your own outside, but you have occasion to interact with people or even just on the phone or even just online you interact. Um, you're not just taking a canned program, it works much better. Uh, and uh, if there's somebody called a professor who is uh, kind of uh, answering your questions when you need them and checking on your work and s- encouraging you to keep going and stuff like that. Uh, but sure, a highly motivated adult can find anything they want to learn online uh, and can often get a credential of value by doing that. I mean, I guess the question is at some point just does the credentialing monopoly go? That is, does an online nursing right. school, which doesn't maybe exist or doesn't exist much as a right. brick-and-mortar school, um, I, mean, I don't see why it couldn't in principle. You know, people pass the tests. Maybe right. they do have to come somewhere to do some practice. So there may have to be some brick-and-mortar sort of aspect to it. But that could be a limited part. And presumably one could then see how well those graduates do compared to graduates sure. of traditional schools. And sure. And there are fields where, of course, you want the, pract- the practicum to be present. 
You probably want the nurse to have yeah. some contact with the human body at some point. Right. You probably want the future chef to have some contact with the kitchen right. at some point. Right. Uh, computer programmers maybe don't need no. uh, Yes. And the preliminary courses you take I exactly. mean, in biology or whatever to exactly. become the nurse, you don't... You don't need to do that right. uh, in a school building. Um, uh, exactly. You need, a, you need a lot of fields do need the practical side to it. But uh, this this combining, this grazing, this blending uh, is, is, is widespread uh, and can work very well for adults. Uh, much better, again, than for the 8-year-old. 18-year-old, better. 28-year-old, much better. But isn't some non-trivial percentage of the kids in higher education, not kids, of the people in higher education, 28-year-olds, yes. not 18-year-olds at this point? Yeah, particularly in the community colleges. Yeah. Uh, there's a huge amount of adult education taking place there. Uh, often people who, who, who missed it the first time or who have acquired motivation or who want to make a career change uh, or who, for whom going back to school and learning something in particular. If you're 28, you're usually not coming back for a liberal arts degree. Right. You're coming back to learn something in particular that's gotten your interest or that you think will get you a better job. And but politically, one hears a lot about free community college right. and so forth, and but, less about right. helping people take courses in whichever way they want to take them, and whether it's at this community college in this state or not. I guess. Exactly. And the and and the when you hear about free community college, what what people think you're talking about are the 18 year olds uh, right. coming out of high school and going to college. Not the 28-year-old or the 38-year-old who's coming back to, to, to improve their skills at something in particular. Now, often those, incidentally, don't lead to degrees. Those lead to what are called certificates. Um, you get certified as, a, as a, a better at some particular activity that you're engaged in. But it sounds to me that there might therefore be more radical change in that world. I think so. I think it's visible. Uh, it's also hollowing out a number of traditional colleges. I mean, colleges are closing and merging. Um, and, um, I mean, I just read yesterday, day before, that uh, what had been a teacher prep college in Boston called Wheelock College I remember that. is now merged into Boston University. Uh-huh. It is now the Fenway campus of Boston University, and the Ed School at Boston University is now the Wheelock College of Education. That's a and merger. there will be more of that because <laughs> the actual absolute numbers exactly. just of people in these different age cohorts is not going up much no, now. No, I mean, it's... Actually, going down some at the sort of traditional American high school graduate. I mean, that another reason for bringing in immigrants is there aren't enough Americans to go around. We've got a huge capacity in the higher education system, and it often goes un, unutilized. That area of higher ed might get much more disrupted in the way we've seen other. I think it already parts is of the American economy. I think it already is, and, and it is more vulnerable to change. It is far less controlled by big bureaucracies. It is right. far less unionized. Um, there's a lot more uh, freedom to change your institution. Again, that's not going to happen at Amherst College, which is right. going to remain tenured and stodgy and liberal arts. It's not right. going to go through radical change. The, unfortunately, from my point of view, change at an Amherst College is let's add a major in feminist studies, let's add a major in uh, right. uh, oppression studies, things like that. That's how they're going to change. It leads to a whole other set of issues in higher education. So stepping back, yes. I mean, I guess... Part of me thinks we need to just be more radical in addressing this uh, whole K through, especially K through 12. You know, it, it yep. isn't what it should be. It's such a huge part of our success or lack thereof as a country. Yep. And we haven't we haven't even talked about citizenship and forming citizens and the content of the education. Exactly. We need to come back and have that conversation. Yes, which we I do. Assume you're not entirely happy about. Not at all. Not at Is all. It worse than I think. 
Well, we have a whole new book out called How to Educate an American that is full of laments about the inattention to civics, to character, to other, to history, to patriotic history, to other core elements of the uh, uh, curriculum. No, I'm not at all happy about how that's going. And structurally, I suppose that that's also harder to address because of the in the sclerotic and hard to change nature of the system, right? I mean, as well as fashionable progressive causes that uh, don't believe in patriotic history, for example, because we have nothing to be proud of as a country. Yeah, it's just a history of oppression and 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 failure and 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 disaster. No, I think the content side is a problem in in K twelve and in higher education, uh, and it needs it needs attention, and that's bloody hard to to do as you were as you were suggesting for political reasons for sclerosis reasons um, for lack of part bipartisanship reasons yes for reasons that I think the people on one side of this fight care, tend to dominate in certain areas certain professions certain ed schools and so forth the people who would be on the other side of the fight are busy in other areas other areas and they're not have don't have the time to review carefully curricula of seventh grade history classes, right? I mean, that's, you know. Or won't bother. They've um, retreating into their own enclaves or into other fields. Or um, And indeed, one of the major reasons for um, this particular book, How to Educate an American, is to get people who are right of center to think again about the importance of K-12 education and, and how it needs to change. We've got some terrific essays in here by some very thoughtful people. Um, about how it how it ought to change going forward, and if we're not going to have bipartisanship in education, then pe- right of center people might at least assert what they value uh, in education. Things like um, citizenship. That would be good, wouldn't that? I guess I so I'm sort of uncertain. Do we? Yeah, you've sort of three quarters convinced me that it's a massive system that has existed a long time. Yep. And it's unlikely, unlike many other parts of America where one might have said that, but then things change pretty fast. Yep. This one seems the most resistant for various structural and other reasons to sort of big change. I think I that's right. That sometimes happens. You know, one always cite you know, the Soviet Union type examples where it's a massive system that looks incredibly and resistant collapses. to change and then collapses. I guess that doesn't happen here. Uh-uh. We don't really want it to happen in a way. Right? Exactly. I mean, so. We don't really want it to happen. And it's not going to collapse. Uh, it's going to continue to get... Uh, sort of nibbled around the edges by innovators in in situations, uh, typically charter school or a, uh, or an online or a for-profit um, or a private school sometimes, uh, where things do get interestingly different on a small scale. And then maybe gets picked up. I mean, the, the KIPP charter schools are up to about 170 of them around the country. The IDEA charter schools are up to heading for 100,000 kids as soon as they are able to open enough schools. So some things are getting a little bit of scale uh, in the innovation side of, of K-12 education. Um, but it's, it's a long way to go at the, at the rate we're going. So with political entrepreneurship and maybe some data that show this yes. this work and works for poor kids, not just for well-off kids. Yes, exactly. Um, maybe you need the profit motive ultimately you know, to make these changes, I guess. Is yes. That a, and is there some of that going on? There's a lot of it going on. But, of course, that leads now to new denunciations from the progressive left. 
that this is privatization of a public good and um, profiteering off of uh, the education of poor kids. So there's a that's part of the political battle right now is that the injection of profit motive um, or even the injection of philanthropy from people who made money from the profit motive right. uh, has become controversial in a way that it wasn't uh, uh, 10, 20 years ago. But the injection of a different aspect of the it's not quite profit motive, but the of uh, financial reward has always been frowned on. I mean, it is. if you came down from Mars and looked at the thing, you would think it's crazy that everyone's getting paid the same yes, it's crazy. as a principal in this district, regardless. Some of them are excellent and right. do fantastic jobs for poor and kids, the and physics, others are totally mediocre time physics servers. Physics teacher and How the gym that, teacher being paid the same. Presumably, that doesn't happen much in other areas of it doesn't. American life. It certain, doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and it shouldn't. Um, and, you know, brand new study just the other day saying that well-crafted merit pay programs for teachers produce smarter, better educated kids. Hmm. But merit pay programs for teachers um, often aren't well-crafted, but they're also always controversial. The union is always against them. Uh, often the teachers are leery of them. Uh, how are you going to judge my, uh, uh, my merit? Um, is this going to be pure favoritism? Is it going to just be limited to teachers who teach the subjects in which there are standardized tests? Um, if I'm, if I'm uh, you know, teaching uh, uh, Italian, uh, there won't be any evidence of my merit, at least not, not in the annual testing and reading and math that has become the coin of the realm for so many of these things. I mean, I guess we should conclude in a minute, but I mean, one lesson I take from this is that our current political context is particularly damaging to I mean, education reform. It's so complex and it does have such a mix of private and public and so much what I characterize as sunk cost, let's just say history and mm -hmm. embedded organizations and institutions and practices that can't be changed overnight and maybe ultimately can't be changed that much, mm -hmm. even in 30 years, but can be changed some. Mm -hmm. It does seem to be particularly an area where, like, where actual serious policymaking becomes important. It I does. Mean, I mean, you can't, you can't, there's no waving a wand or, and our, since our politics is now entirely wand waving. Yes, wand waving. at least, on the right and the left. Maybe it's better at the state and local level somewhat, but uh, I mean, that's sort of a bad, it seems to me that there were people in the 80s and 90s and- There were, the last and few there years are. Who tried, you know, Jeb Bush really knew a lot about. And so did, so did Roy Romer in, Colorado um, and the Bob Demo Graham and uh, Democrats. Yeah, right, Democrats right. too. Now, do you think that's still happening at the mayor only gubernatorial level, or are they in a handful of places? But not, um, yeah. but again, then there's an election, yeah. and the teachers union takes over the school board or gets the gets a De Blasio instead of a uh, in in instead of a Bloomberg uh, to be mayor. So it things do tend to revert. I spent four years until pretty recently on the Maryland State Board of Education. Um, which is indeed state-level uh, education policy, and ended up uh, deeply frustrated by both the resistance around the state to change and the resistance within the state's own bureaucracy uh, to change, and then the stranglehold that the union has over the legislature, uh, such that when the board screw screwed up its courage to make a change, uh, it would sometimes get under uh, the rug pulled out by the legislature because the union didn't like the change that we were making. This is the state I've lived in for 40 plus years. And not a, not a, not a happy story. Very illuminating one for me, but not a, on the whole a happy story. Yeah, that's a depressing note on which to end. We should find some other, <laughs> something else well, to Well, I've been but... at this for 50 years and I'm not quitting. Um, I, I, there are enough bright spots, whether it's advanced placement or poor kids learning more math or uh, 
um, uh, Teach for America bringing more interesting people into teaching right. or the idea charter schools coming out of the Rio Grande Valley and uh, uh, moving into Louisiana because they're really good schools for kids. I mean, there's there are enough bright spots to keep me going. We need to, it sounds like, the, yeah, we need entrepreneurship and we need serious policy making. Though, yes. And sort of denunciations or just giving into the status quo, which is yes. a, a lot of what we now have, I would say. Uh, absolutely. Or just promises, you know, free, absolutely. free this or free that. But uh, Don't do much good. But I haven't given up, and I, a lot of people I, I think pretty highly of haven't given up. It is important, right? I mean, really. It's important. I mean, exactly. you can't sort of have a great country. <laughs> With a crappy education system. Yeah. No. I mean, you can have it for a while. You can sort of coast a little bit, but at some point it catches up to you. No? Well, what this country did for a long time was uh, educated 10 or 20% of the population quite well. And uh, again, the other 80% were either pushing a plow or uh, doing something on, a, on an assembly line. And they didn't need to be highly educated. Uh, so it worked okay. Uh, and I'd say it carried us through the 50s and 60s pretty well. And had a pretty robust civic education that mm-hmm. wasn't academic, I would say. Exactly. Some of which was in schools and some of which was outside. Yes, exactly. And civil society kind of integrated. Parents tended to support the school's judgment about their kids' behavior instead of fighting it, which happens a lot now. Uh, the, the thing was better knit together, but it was also serving a different kind of a population. Um, less diverse, and also um, uh, an industrial population. It was working pretty well. I don't think the system has caught up with the changes that have occurred either in our demographics or our economy. So that's an opportunity for yes. politicians, policymakers, entrepreneurs, yes. citizens, but it's a challenging yes. opportunity. Precisely. Okay. Well, that's a little more upbeat than we were five minutes ago, <laughs> so we should stop there. All right. Checker Finn, thank you very much for joining me today. Really an illuminating discussion. And for me particularly, I hope one that shows how complicated some of these areas of public policy are. And you really need to know a lot about them to do good. There's no magic finger snapping. Thank you for the opportunity. And I'm looking forward to dragging you back deeper into education reform than you have recently been. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that. (laughs) But I will get you back also to talk more on the content character side of it and what could be done about civic education and so forth. Uh, Yes, happy to do. Checker Finn, thank you very much for joining me today, and thank you for joining us on Conversations.